Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. Go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. And today's podcast is also sponsored by Indeed, the number one source for hires. Join the over 3 million businesses worldwide that are already hiring with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. And you can get started with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Both stocks and bonds got hammered today, and the catalyst for the selling was the release of prepared remarks by Fed Chair Powell that he was set to deliver later that morning before the United States Senate, because there was a joint conference today where both Chair Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen gave remarks to the Senate and were there to answer questions. And, you know, first of all, I never like it when you see the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chair of the Fed participating in a joint anything, because you don't want these two entities working together. Now, of course, this is what's happened. It's become commonplace for the Treasury Department and the Fed to work almost hand in glove as they coordinate policy, but that is not the intention of the independence of the Federal Reserve. I mean, what's the point of having an independent Fed if your independent Fed does the bidding of the Treasury Department? Remember, in many cases, they should be on opposite sides of the bargaining table because Congress, the president, the administration, they generally want to spend a lot of money because that's how they get votes. And they don't want to raise taxes because that's how you lose votes. So they want to borrow money and they want the Fed to cooperate and monetize the debt. But the purpose of an independent Fed is so there is no cooperation. So when you have circumstances where you have a Congress that wants to borrow too much money, the Federal Reserve is not supposed to cooperate. The Federal Reserve is supposed to stand steadfast and not monetize debt, allow interest rates to rise sufficiently to force the government to act fiscally responsible. But when you have the Treasury and the Fed coordinating their efforts and working together, then you sacrifice all the benefit of the Fed's independence. And basically, the Fed becomes an arm of the U.S. Treasury, enabling the government to go deeper and deeper into debt and rely on the cooperation of the Fed to finance the debts by monetizing them. So right off the bat, we should not even have such a spectacle. And when you see both the Fed chairman and the Secretary of the Treasury in a joint testimony, you really should be selling dollars and buying gold. Of course, the opposite happened today because investors still don't really understand the significance of what they are watching. But getting back to what drove the markets today, it was the opening remarks from Chair Powell. And what did Powell say that so spooked the markets? Well, basically, Powell 
admitted in so many words that the Fed got it wrong about inflation. I mean, not that it's not transitory. They're still sticking to that. But the Fed is admitting reluctantly that this transitory bout of inflation is worse than they thought it would be. The inflation itself is higher, meaning the price increases that we are experiencing are higher than what the Fed had forecast. And the duration, the price increases are sticking and continuing for longer than the Fed forecast. In fact, this morning, when we got the release of Powell's remarks, oil prices were at $66 a barrel. This is the highest really we've been except maybe one day of the move. And in fact, all of the oil stocks in pre-market trading, and then again, even after the market opened, even with the overall market down, pretty much all of the major global oil companies were hitting new 52-week highs. So we completely reversed that sell-off. And I spoke about the buying opportunity on this podcast when I saw that sharp sell-off in oil stocks, even though the price of oil had barely gone down, I pointed out that oil stock traders were anticipating a big decline in oil prices that I did not believe would ever happen. And now I guess those traders realized that their bearishness was unwarranted and they rushed to buy back these stocks. And so they were making new highs while most stocks were down on the day. But also natural gas prices were up another 10% on the day. We were at about 625 for natural gas. This is a multi, multi-year high. I mean, prices have been going up solidly every day, but I think 10% move was the biggest I had seen. So seeing these huge increases in energy prices, while the Fed is also admitting that it underestimated how bad the transitory increase in inflation would be and how long it would last. But more important to the markets than the Fed kind of admitting that they got it wrong was what the Fed said it would do if it also got the transitory part wrong. Powell said that if inflation persists, if it continues to be above what the Fed forecast and it lasts for longer, then the Fed is prepared to use its tools to fight inflation and bring the rate back down to target. And that is what scared the hell out of markets. And we got a big sell-off. The Dow Jones finished down 500 and 59 points, not quite the low of the day, but close enough. That's down 1.63%. The S&P 500 suffered a greater loss of over 2%, down just over 90 points. And the reason for that was the weakness in the tech stocks. They got clobbered today. The NASDAQ down over 400 points, 423 points. That's just over 2.8%. 8% decline. That is the biggest drop on the day. That eclipsed the two and a quarter percent drop in the Russell 2000. And what I think is going on, first of all, with respect to the technology stocks, because we saw yesterday weakness in the tech sector yesterday as the Dow went up. Today, the Dow went down too. It just didn't fall as much as the tech stocks. But what I think is happening is the markets are getting back into the reflation trade because that trade was interrupted by all the taper talk. And I said on my last podcast, I think the taper 
is now fully priced into the market. And what I mean by that is that I think all the trades that traders intended to make as a result of the taper have been made. Meaning the people who believe the taper is bearish for gold have already sold their gold. The people who think the taper is bullish for the dollar, they've already bought their dollars. The people who think the taper is bearish for stocks have already sold their stocks. Now, of course, what people expect to happen to stocks as a result of the taper may be wrong. I mean, maybe stocks will go down more than those who already sold their stocks believe. That's not my point. My point is that I think the trades have been made. And so now what's left is for the opposite to occur, as is a typical buy the rumor, sell the fact situation. So what I think is happening with the reflation trade is that trade was on in full force before the taper talk really elevated to a high level. And so when people began to worry about taper, they started to unwind some of those trades. So they started to sell the value-oriented stocks, the stocks that paid good dividends, and they started to move back into the momentum-type NASDAQ stocks. Well, now that the taper is fully priced in, I think that reflation trade is now resuming and you're starting to see the flows continue back out of momentum and overpriced tech stocks into better valued dividend paying stocks. And we saw that even today, even though everything was down, those type of stocks were down a lot less than the tech stocks. But I don't think the big drop today had to do with taper. Again, I think that's priced in. I think the reason that you had the big selling today was because of the Fed raising the specter of rate hikes. Because again, you know, when Powell opened his remarks and delivered the news about inflation, he ended his prepared remark by reminding the Senate that even though during his last press conference, he said that we had all but satisfied the requirements for a taper. He went out of his way to say we're not even close to satisfying the requirements for a rate hike. But if the Fed has to fight inflation, which Powell just indicated he would do if the Fed is wrong about the transitory nature. And the Fed already admitted basically that it's been wrong about two things, how high inflation would be and how long it would last. So it's not hard to believe that it may be wrong about the whole transitory part too. But if the Fed is going to follow through on its threat to fight inflation or not a threat, a promise, right, to fight inflation, if it turns out that it's more persistent than it thought, The only way it can do that is by raising interest rates. And of course, a quarter point rate hike isn't going to do anything. The Fed is going to have to raise interest rates substantially in order to fight inflation. And I don't even think the markets are contemplating that reality. I think the markets may simply be reacting to the thought that we may get that liftoff, that first quarter point hike sooner rather than later as a result of the Fed having to admit that we actually have an inflation problem on our hands and liftoff will have to happen sooner than the Fed is indicating. Because that's why I think you saw this big sell-off. And it's not just the stock market. It started in the bond market. 
bond yields really spiked. In fact, the yield on the 30-year actually got above 2.1% intraday. It closed at 2 spot 07. That was still a big move on the day. The 10-year, also a big move, not quite as much, but its yield is now back above one and a half. We closed at one spot five three four but more importantly than where we closed is that the charts indicate that there's plenty of room for yields to rise and this is now a completely new issue for the markets that had i think pretty much already baked a slow taper into the cake now powell threw a monkey wrench into the plans by indicating that he may have to take some decisive actions soon to fight off inflation that may not be transitory. And that is where you got all the selling. But, you know, the problem is once the testimony went underway, Powell did not elaborate at all on what the Fed may do to fight inflation if it turns out not to be transitory. In fact, there were no real questions about it. That was really the only thing that Powell said on the entire topic. It would have been interesting, of course, to see a senator actually ask a pointed question about this topic and then force Powell to answer it rather than dodge it, which he normally does. But that didn't even happen. So he wasn't even put in the uncomfortable position of trying to explain exactly how he would do this or whether or not he's actually willing to fight inflation without any regard to the effect those tools may have on the economy, on employment, on the stock market, on the federal budget. Of course, it is impossible to fight inflation without destroying the bubble economy and the stock market and blowing an even bigger hole in the deficit, which is why the markets are wrong. The markets should not be afraid of the Fed prematurely fighting inflation. They should be afraid of the Fed not fighting inflation because it can't do it without creating politically unacceptable problems that the Fed is never going to bring about. So the markets are still not reacting properly. Although if you look at what happened in gold today, yeah, it was down 15 or 16 bucks, but the percentage decline in gold was much lower than the percentage decline in stocks. Gold didn't even drop by a full percentage point. And in fact, even though the GDX and the GDXJ were each down about a percentage point, again, less than the overall stock market, there were plenty of individual gold stocks that finished positive on the day. Now, not that many stocks did finish positive on the day, but some of the few that were positive were gold stocks. So maybe that is an indication that the selling is running its course in that sector and people are starting to realize that the real threat is not that the Fed fights inflation, but that inflation wins without a fight, that the Fed simply surrenders because it knows it can't win. And that has a completely different effect on the various markets. I mean, yes, it's bearish for bonds. So bonds definitely need to be sold in an environment where there's a lot of inflation. But the dollar needs to be sold too, and gold and gold stocks need to be bought. 
When you're running your small business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. You got wrongful termination suits, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations. And those HR manager salaries ain't cheap at an average of $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, can come to the rescue. It was created specifically for small business owners like you and me. You get a free, dedicated HR manager to craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance, and they do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from being one of your biggest liabilities to one of your greatest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding determinations, they will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day and do it all for just $99 a month. And the best part is, it's month-to-month, there are no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. So go to Bambi.com slash goal right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. But anyway, I want to actually get to the Senate testimony itself, where really Powell failed to put any real meat on the bone of his prepared remarks. So I'm actually surprised that we didn't see maybe a rally back in gold based on the fact that the hype of the Senate testimony didn't really live up to the prepared remarks that had been leaked because that was basically the only thing that Powell had to say. But what was really more important than what people said during this testimony was what wasn't said. And really what wasn't said was that the Fed is to blame for the inflation. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Now, Powell, in his prepared remarks, when he did admit that 
the Fed was wrong in its assessment of how bad this transitory bout of inflation would be or how long it would last, he nonetheless blamed all of it on supply chain bottlenecks. In other words, it was all the result of inadequate supply. Had nothing to do with all the money printing and all the deficit spending. It was just these pesky supply chains got all bogged down and it was a bigger bottleneck than the Fed anticipated and it's all clogged for longer than they thought. But don't worry, it's all going to free up shortly. Oh, and by the way, it's just a few items that are really problematic. It's not a wide scale across the board increase in prices, except for the fact that it is wide scale and it is across the board because we're seeing price increases pretty much in every facet of the economy. It's hard to just say it's isolated to a couple of things that are associated with the reopening unless you want to associate every single thing we buy with the reopening. But nobody in the U.S. Senate really blamed the Fed policies for these Problems. I mean, the Democrats and the Republicans were too busy blaming each other for having to raise the debt ceiling. Nobody really wanted to point the finger at the Fed for being the real culprit here in enabling all these deficits in the first place and causing the inflation by printing all this money to monetize government debt. But of course, the Democrats in the Senate did exactly what I said they were going to do when Donald Trump was president and the Republicans had both houses of Congress. The Republicans voted to increase the deficit. They voted to suspend the debt ceiling to enable bigger deficits. They voted for tax cuts that increased the deficit. They voted for increases in welfare spending that increased the deficit. They voted for increases in military spending that increased the deficit. They voted to create an entire new branch of the U.S. military, the Space Force, which increased the deficit. And I said at that time, the fact that Republicans were signing on to reckless spending and increases in the debt meant that they would be in no position to push back on the Democrats once they regained power and did the same thing. Now, I said they would try, but I said they would be called out for their hypocrisy, and that is exactly what the Democrats are doing, and I don't blame them because the Republicans are a bunch of hypocrites. They made this bed, and now they're lying in it, and they have no credibility on this issue. I mean, the voters can see through this farce. I mean, they're pretending that now all of a sudden they care about the national debt and they don't want to vote to raise the debt ceiling when the reason that we have so much debt in part is because of what they voted for. They voted for this increased spending when they had both houses of Congress and the White House. And now when they're in no position to do something about it, all of a sudden they want to do something. But when they actually had the authority or the ability, when they had control of the White House and Congress and could have done something, they did nothing. And that is the point that the Democrats are making. Of course, even Janet Yellen, again, reiterated the lie that this is all about paying our bills. I mean, nobody points out other than me that it's the opposite. It's about not paying our bills, right? It's because we don't pay our bills that we're $28 trillion in debt. If we paid our bills, we'd have no debt, but we don't pay our bills. So we have a lot of debt. 
And why do we want to raise the debt ceiling? To avoid paying our bills. Because if we don't raise the debt ceiling, then the bills come due. Then we actually have to pay. The problem is we can't pay because we don't have the money. And in fact, Janet Yellen admitted as much because she talked about today all of the terrible things that will happen if we can't raise the debt ceiling. We can't make Social Security payments, right? There are a lot of important things that we can't do if we can't borrow more money, which means eventually all of those bad things are going to happen. It's just going to happen later rather than sooner because we're broke. If you admit that we can't pay our bills unless we go deeper into debt, then you admit that we'll never pay our bills. And when you admit that if we can't go deeper into debt, we will default on our bills is another admission that we will never pay them. In fact, it's also an admission that the U.S. government is running a Ponzi scheme because we're also telling our creditors If we can't borrow more money from you, then we're not going to be able to pay you back the money we already borrowed, right? It's like Bernie Madoff admitting to his customers he's running a Ponzi scheme and telling them, hey, if you want to take any distributions from your account, you have to send more money in because I can't send any money out unless I get new money in. That is what Yellen is admitting when she says that we have to borrow more money to pay off our existing loans. You're not paying off your loans. You're just substituting one loan for another loan. And again, I think it was Yellen or one of the senators that equated paying, increasing the national debt with making your credit card payment. No, it's not making your credit card payment. It is putting the bill on a new credit card. When you make your credit card payment, your credit card bill goes down, right? So your debt to the credit card company is diminished when you make your payment and you are paying off your credit card debt. When we raise the debt ceiling, the 28 plus trillion dollar national debt isn't diminished by one penny. We are just going to increase it. So the analogy would not be paying your credit card bill. The analogy would be finding another credit card company to pay your credit card bill for you so that you can owe the money to the new credit card company instead of the old credit card company. But the net effect is the amount that you owe is higher because you could not pay your bill. And again, that is what all this is about. It's about continuing to not pay our bills. And everybody is going to keep up with this charade that somehow we're paying our bills by going deeper into debt. But, you know, the real problem for the markets is not the ceiling on the debt, right? It's the floor on the dollar. Because we could keep on raising the ceiling on the debt all we want. The problem is what happens when the floor breaks beneath the dollar? Because it's not about how much money we're willing to borrow, right? We'll borrow as much money as people are dumb enough to lend us. The breaking point is when the lenders don't want to lend us any more money when they realize that they're never going to get paid back and the only way they can get paid back is in dollars that have no value that's when the floor drops out from beneath the dollar and we get a currency crash that is the crisis that we're going to and the crisis is going to arrive not because we failed to raise the debt ceiling but because we succeeded It's all the successful increases in the debt ceiling that have enabled all of this debt. And this is the reason that we are heading towards a currency crisis that is going to be much worse than whatever would happen if we simply failed to raise the debt ceiling now 
and dealt with the problem on our own terms. Instead, we're going to deal with a much bigger problem on our creditors' terms. No business can afford to pay for what they don't need. At Indeed.com, you only pay for the quality candidates that meet your must-have job requirements. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job post that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in just one place. You can even do the interviews. Don't just hope your perfect candidate happens to find you. Find them using Indeed's hiring tools that help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed Instant Match immediately delivers quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description. You can even invite candidates to apply right away. And according to Indeed data, candidates you invite are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search alone. Plus, with Instant Match, Indeed data shows 90% of employers get quality candidates from Indeed's resume database as soon as they sponsor a job post, according to Indeed data. And according to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join the more than 3 million business owners worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. Indeed.com Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. I want to focus, though, on some of the lowlights of the joint testimony, just some of the answers to some of the questions that were asked. One of the questions was, I think, directed to Janet Yellen, and it had to do with how much debt we have as a nation and whether or not the $28-plus trillion debt is a problem, which, of course, it is. And so what Janet Yellen said is that, well, you know, our debt to GDP is just over 100% of GDP. But that, of course, is a gross misrepresentation of the size of the problem because we're really at 126% of GDP, not just over 100%. But the way Janet Yellen gets the debt down to just 100% is she ignores all the money the U.S. government owes to the Social Security Trust Fund, the Medicare Trust Fund. So in other words, Yellen pretends that those obligations aren't real, even though those are the very obligations that she says aren't going to get paid if we don't raise the debt ceiling. So if you're honest about all the commitments that the U.S. government has made, the figure is not 100% of GDP, but it's really 126%. But of course, even that isn't real because you're not looking at state government debt, and all sorts of other governments, municipalities that are laying claim on the same tax base. If you actually look at debt from all levels, local, state, and federal, you're now looking at a debt-to-GDP ratio in excess of 140%. Because most nations, when you're looking at the debt, they don't have all these various levels of government like we do. So, They may just have debt at the national level, but we have debt 
on the national, the state, the municipal, but all of these taxing authorities are ultimately drawing on the same set of taxpayers to bear the burden of repaying this debt. So we are in uncharted territory, or it's actually been charted, but countries that have gone down this path and have gotten as far as we have, they've all ended in disasters. There's no historical precedence for a nation going this deep into debt where there wasn't a crisis, a currency crisis, hyperinflation. I mean, there's never been a smooth way out of this. That would be unprecedented. But Janet Yellen basically dismissed it. And here's her logic. She said that we shouldn't really look at the size of the debt in relation to the economy. What we should look at is the debt service cost, how much it costs us to pay the interest on the debt. And as long as that's not too big a burden, well, we don't have anything to worry about. Well, the problem there is that the reason the debt payments are so low is because interest rates are at zero, right? The Fed has got interest rates at the lowest they've been in history. And that is the reason that the payments on the enormity of the amount of debt that we have are so small. Now, Janet Yellen acknowledged and attributed the low debt service costs to the low interest rate environment that we're in. But she then said that she expects that that low interest rate environment to be with us pretty much indefinitely. And so we don't have to worry about interest rates ever going up. And even if they do eventually go up, well, it's barely going to be an increase. I mean, maybe they'll go to a 1%. I don't know. So it's never going to be a factor. And so as long as we're in this low interest rate environment, well, it doesn't matter how much debt we have, which of course is sheer nonsense because what if the low interest rate environment goes away? What if it's temporary? What if it's transitory, right? Like they claim inflation is. Sure, it's been here for a while, but what if it goes away? Because the Fed basically just threatened to take it away. That was what scared the market. If the inflation that we're seeing right now is not transitory, and the Fed is forced to fight inflation, it is going to have to substantially increase interest rates. And there goes your benevolent low interest rate environment. And then what? I mean, basically, Janet Yellen said, we shouldn't do anything about the national debt until it's a crisis. Because if the low interest rate environment goes away, then of course, it is impossible for the US government to afford to service the debt. Now, the responsible thing to do is not wait for the bomb to go off, try to defuse it now. I mean, you have to realize that at some point, rates are going to go up, especially looking at our budget deficits, looking at our trade deficits, looking at what's already happening to consumer prices. It's not only wrong to assume that low interest rates are here indefinitely, it's laughable. It's obvious that rates have got to go up. The fact that they haven't already gone up doesn't mean they're never going to go up. In fact, an increase in rates is long overdue. I mean, we're literally living on borrowed time when it comes to rates. In fact, what this really reminds me of is the mortgage bubble that popped you know, in 2008 with the financial crisis Because one of the mistakes that the lenders made with the mortgage market, and this was true of Fannie and Freddie too, which is a government-sponsored enterprise. Fannie and Freddie was guaranteeing mortgages. And when they were assessing the wherewithal of the borrowers to repay the loan, 
They were only looking at whether or not the borrower had the income necessary to pay the initial teaser rate on the mortgage. Because back then, a lot of mortgages came with a teaser rate. And what that meant is for the first several years of the mortgage, you got a really, really low rate. But after this teaser period expired, the rate would go up. So let's say your teaser rate was 2%. You had 2% for the first two years, and then it jumped up to 4% or something like that, whatever it was. It meant that there was a big step up in the monthly payment after that introductory teaser period expired. And so what the banks were doing with the blessing of Fannie and Freddie is when they were deciding whether or not the borrower could afford to make the mortgage payments, they only did the analysis on the ability to make the teaser payments. And so as long as the borrower had enough income to make the initial payment, all good, we're gonna guarantee the loan, go ahead, loan them the money, the government's gonna guarantee it, everything is good, they can make the teaser rate. But nobody bothered to consider whether or not that borrower would have the capacity to make the payment once the rate reset and the payments went up. And of course, many people didn't have the capacity. They didn't even care if they had the capacity. Their plan was to refinance or to sell the house and make a profit. Nobody really cared. As long as you could swing the teaser rate payment, you were good. Well, we all know how that turned out. The teaser periods expired. The mortgage payments went up. The borrower couldn't afford to make the payments. Real estate prices went down. And instead of mailing in the payment that they couldn't afford, they mailed in the keys and the rest is history. Well, we're making the same mistake now. We're assuming we're all good with a $28 trillion national debt simply because we can swing this teaser rate that we've got courtesy of the Fed temporarily. And in the process, we're racking up a lot more debt because we're under the delusion that the teaser rate is going to be here indefinitely. And so we're taking on even more debt, which means that when that period expires and the market resets rates substantially higher, we have that much more debt that we can't afford to pay. In fact, the whole position that Yellen is taking as the Secretary of the Treasury, right, she is responsible for this. And basically saying, hey, we don't care about all this debt because we've temporarily got these low rates and we're just going to go with a plan that rates never go up, even though if they ever do go up, which is far more likely than not, it's a complete disaster. She's just okay with it. What kind of secretary of the treasury is that? I mean, if there was a secretary of the treasury of a private company and they had such a plan for their debt, I mean, not only would that treasurer be fired, he'd probably be sued for some violation of fiduciary duty. You can't just have an unsustainable situation and your plan is, well, we're just going to guess and assume that something that's very improbable will just continue indefinitely. And that's our plan, right? We're just never going to have a problem with rates going up. And so therefore, we don't have to worry about all the debt. And in fact, not only do we not have to worry about all the debt we have, let's just rack up trillions more based on the same false premise. You know, another point that Janet Yellen made when she was responding to these questions, particularly, you know, from the Republicans, because the Republicans, of course, made it known that they object to the tax increases that the Democrats want to supposedly pay for some of the increase in government spending. And Janet Yellen pointed out 
that it's necessary, that we need the money. And there was a one woman from Wyoming, and I actually liked what she had to say. She was very upset about these new requirements that banks report transactions as small as $600 to the IRS. And Janet Yellen claimed that this was necessary and important because we have a big tax gap and the government needs to collect more tax revenue so that it can fund additional spending. And Yellen said that this is all necessary to make the U.S. economy more productive and more competitive, which of course belies all of the recorded evidence from history that proves conclusively that it is the opposite that is in fact true. You do not make an economy more productive and more competitive by transferring more resources from the private sector to the government. It is the opposite. It is the prevention of that transformation. The more resources can be kept out of the hands of government, the more resources that are retained in the private sector, that is what determines how productive and how competitive you are. You can look throughout the world and you can find that those countries where government is the smallest, where the government has the smallest burden on the economy, where their spending is the lowest percentage of GDP compared to everybody else, those countries with the smallest government are the most productive and the most competitive. It's countries that have bigger governments, where their governments command the larger share of GDP. Those are the countries that suffer in productivity and competitiveness. And of course, you could look back historically at the United States. When was the United States the most productive and the most competitive? That's when we had the least amount of government. As government has grown in the United States, our productivity and our competitiveness have shrunk. So they are the opposite. So it is not true that the government needs to be bigger and take more money from the private sector to make the economy more productive and more competitive. In fact, the reason the economy has become less productive and less competitive is because of how large the government has grown over the decades. So if Janet Yellen really were concerned about making the U.S. economy more productive and more competitive, she would be concerned about cutting government spending, not increasing tax revenue. Also, on the subject of taxes, I thought it was laughable that I think the committee came to a close with the chairman mentioning that once they pass or the Democrats get this new bill passed that includes these tax increases, that for the first time in history, corporations and the wealthiest Americans will finally, finally start to pay their fair share to contribute to the growth of the country which again is such a laughable comment. First of all, if we were finally going to make the wealthy pay their fair share, we would have to cut their taxes. The truth of the matter is, despite all the rhetoric, the wealthy are paying more than their fair share. First of all, what's your fair share? Well, I would think a fair share is, well, how many Americans are there? So each one of us pays his fair share. Well, what the wealthy are paying dwarfs 
what the average American pays. In fact, there are plenty of Americans that don't pay any federal taxes at all. How come nobody ever says that Americans who aren't paying anything need to pay their fair share? I mean, you have people that are already paying way more than their fair share based on the fact that they're just one person, right? Because we all get the same benefits from government. I mean, first of all, nobody gets more than one vote, but you know, it's the same Defense Department protecting everybody. We all benefit from the same laws, the same rules that are supposedly making the economy better or making the country a nicer place to live, right? I mean, government is there to provide services to everybody. It's not providing rich people with a higher quality of service. I mean, it's the same service that everybody gets. And so you have some people that are really carrying the weight of other people and nobody ever says, hey, the people who are just not paying any income taxes at all, they need to start paying their fair share. No, it's always the people who are paying high income taxes that are being asked to pay even more. But the other point I want to make on this topic is it's not that the wealthiest and corporations are not contributing to the growth of the country. They are contributing. How do you think they got so wealthy? People get wealthy in America by contributing to economic growth. The reward for helping to grow the economy is that you get rich. So apart from the fact that there are some people who stole money and they got rich that way, most of the people who get rich did it by earning their wealth. And even if they inherited their wealth, they inherited it from somebody who earned it. So the money was earned and it was earned in the process of making America a more prosperous nation. Tax revenue and government spending isn't what grows the economy. The government is able to redistribute the fruits of economic growth through taxing and spending, but it doesn't actually create the economic growth. It's the economic growth that enables the taxing and the spending. So the wealthy Americans are already contributing to the growth of the economy by accumulating their wealth, by investing, by running businesses, starting businesses, expanding businesses, doing all the hard things associated with entrepreneurship. That is how they are doing more than their fair share to grow the economy. And the more money we take from the entrepreneurs, the harder we make it for them to grow the economy. In fact, the less economic growth we get because we are diminishing the tools that they have at their disposal to actually put into productive use to grow the economy. So again, we don't want to burden entrepreneurs, American businesses with even higher rates of taxation. What we want to do is relieve them of the burden of the current taxes that they're already paying But the only way to do that is to dramatically reduce the amount that U.S. government spends, which means we have to cut entitlements and all sorts of other government spending programs that nobody wants to discuss. In fact, even the Republicans are unwilling to discuss actually reducing government spending. And when they had the opportunity to reduce government spending during the Trump presidency, Not only did they not avail themselves of that opportunity, but they actually increased government spending instead. Also, a lot of people were paying attention to the carnage in the markets and what was going on on Capitol Hill. Probably not a lot of people were even noticing the economic data that came out today. Again, most of it worse than expected. We did get the merchandise trade deficit. Nobody ever cares about those numbers with the exception of me. And I'm going to talk about them because, again, the numbers are horrific. Once again, worse than expected. 
We had a deficit in goods in July of $86.4 billion. That was supposed to grow to $87 billion. Well, first of all, we revised up the prior month to $86.8 billion, and the August number came out at $87.6 billion. So again, above the consensus estimate, both imports and exports did rise. Imports were up eight-tenths of a percent. Exports were up seven-tenths of a percent. So the deficit went up. This, again, is a reflection of the underlying weakness in the American economy because we are relying so heavily on the production that occurs overseas, not the production that we're able to produce ourselves. We got the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index for September was supposed to have a positive print. I forget what the expectation was. We got nine last month. We ended up negative three for September, so a weak number at the Richmond Fed. But probably the number that should normally scare the markets was consumer confidence plunging, I think, to a seven-month low. This index was supposed to come in at 1148 And it came in at 109.3. And the reason that consumers are losing confidence, although in my mind, they still remain overconfident. And I think there's a long way for this index to drop as consumers come to terms with the grim reality of how bad this inflation problem is going to be. But what is already causing consumers to be worried is the increase in prices. And these increases are not only going to stick around, They are going to accelerate and the Fed is not going to live up to its promise or threat, depending on your perspective, of doing anything about it because they can't. The only question is, when is the bottom going to drop out of the dollar and put an end to this party? You know, you would think that would have already happened given how unappealing U.S. Treasuries are. And in fact, foreign buyers are really not putting money into U.S. Treasuries. So what are they doing with all their dollars? How are these massive trade surpluses being recycled if foreigners don't want to buy our U.S. Treasuries? And why would they? The yields are substantially below even the official rates of inflation. And I think what's been going on is instead of buying U.S. Treasuries, foreigners have been buying U.S. tech stocks. Amazon, Google, Netflix, the big stay-at-home stocks, the stocks that really benefited from COVID. America dominates the world in these overpriced tech and momentum stocks, social networking stocks, all of these meme-type stocks, not like the official meme stocks like AMC or GameStop. I think all of the FANG stocks are effectively meme stocks as well. There's a cult about them, and you can throw stocks like Tesla in there, and then you've got the Kathy Woods and her ARC funds and all this momentum investing. We lead the world in that, right? America is the leader in overpriced, hyped-up stocks. And so that's where the dollars have been flowing because that's where the momentum has been. The world has wanted to hide out in these stocks because there's been a huge reward for buying them because they keep going up in price and anybody who bought them looks like a genius. In fact, the U.S. stock market is so hyped up with inflated momentum stocks that many important sectors are substantially underweighted. 
Take energy, for example. I talked on this podcast about what's going on in the oil and gas market. I think these trends are going to continue. I think a lot of money is going to be flowing into the energy sector, alternative energy as well. But look at the S&P 500. Only about 2.3% of the current S&P 500 is the energy sector. That is about the smallest energy has ever represented in the S&P 500. In fact, when I first got my Series 7 stockbroker's license back in the 1980s, I remember one of the questions on that exam, and I remember it so distinctly because it was also in my practice book. So before I took the exam, I took these practice exams, and this question was verbatim in my practice exam, and then it was on the actual exam. And it had to do with a hypothetical situation where you're a stockbroker and you have a customer, and your customer, client, tells you that he's very bullish on oil prices, and he expects the price of oil to go up. What would be a suitable recommendation that you would make? And there were four choices or five choices. The correct choice was to recommend that he purchase an S&P 500 index fund. Now, why would that be your recommendation to a client who said they're very bullish on oil prices? Well, it was because the S&P 500 back in the 1980s was heavily weighted to energy stocks. I don't remember the exact weighting. It was probably 15 to 20% of the index was energy stocks. And so therefore, that was supposedly the way you would benefit from an increase in oil prices. Now, I remember thinking at the time, that I would give different recommendations. But of the choices that were there, because it was multiple choice, that one, I guess, was the most suitable, and that was the correct answer. But think about that in today's terms, because obviously you can't have that question anymore when you have oil only about one-tenth of the weighting that it had back then. I mean, now if somebody told you, hey, I'm really bullish on tech stocks, what should I do? Well, then you can tell them to buy an S&P 500 index fund because that's exactly what dominates the index. But it's been the popularity of those overpriced, hyped up COVID stay at home type stocks that have enabled us to finance these enormous trade deficits because even though our foreign creditors weren't recycling their surpluses into treasuries, they were using those surpluses to buy those stocks. So I think that is what has been holding up the dollar, not because foreigners want to use their dollars to buy low-yielding U.S. treasuries. They want to use their dollars to buy lower, no-yielding U.S. equities because they're under the belief that those prices are going to keep going up. But if I'm right about what I said earlier in the podcast, that we are unwinding that trade, that we are now going back to that unwind that was interrupted temporarily by the taper talk. Now that everybody knows there's going to be a taper, it's a foregone conclusion if we even have it, and it's baked into the cake, I think we're resuming that shift that the taper talk interrupted. And to the extent that this continues and the world wants out of momentum stocks and they want to buy real value, they want to buy real dividends and they want real inflation hedges. And if interest rates keep rising, if bond yields keep rising, which is one of the reasons that we saw this sell-off in the tech sector today, if these trends continue, 
then that is going to knock the legs out from under this new stool that's been propping up the dollar. Because now, if foreigners decide they don't want overpriced momentum stocks, they want value for their money, they want to buy real companies with real assets that produce real products that have real earnings and pay real dividends, America doesn't lead the world in that. In fact, we lag the world. If you want those type of stocks, you're going to look in Europe. You're going to look in Asia. You're not going to look in the United States. And so that means we're going to be running record trade deficits and record budget deficits without any means of financing them legitimately externally because the money is not going to be flowing back into our markets. It's going to be flowing out of our markets. In fact, at the same time, the U.S. Treasury is going to be looking to borrow more dollars. The world is going to be looking to cash out their dollars in addition to the Treasury looking for funding because when foreigners sell their Amazons and their Googles and their Apples, when they sell these stocks, they get dollars. Then they have to sell those dollars to get back their own currencies, which they then would need to purchase value-oriented dividend-paying stocks in their own markets or in other foreign markets. So really the whole world is going to be selling dollars as the Fed is creating them at an unprecedented rate and the Fed becomes the only buyer, really, of U.S. Treasuries, which is why what the Fed said earlier in the morning was just a bluff. There is no way the Fed is going to fight inflation. And especially when Powell's term is coming up, he needs to be reappointed. He wants to be reappointed. He's a Republican, by the way, I guess, because that's why Trump appointed him. Well, why would Biden leave Powell in office if he was appointed by a predecessor of the opposite party. And the only reason he would do that is basically a quid pro quo for keeping interest rates at zero and continuing to do quantitative easing. And I think Powell knows the price of a second term is doing just that, which is why really the politics don't even mean anything when it comes to the chairman of the Federal Reserve. They always do the bidding of whatever party is in power, regardless of which party appointed them. And of course, Biden doesn't want to risk rocking the boat because the markets are very confident that Powell will continue to pour alcohol into the punch bowl and never take it away. So it is ridiculous to watch how the market reacts to the things that Powell says when it's obvious that what he says and what he does are different. He has to pretend that the Fed is going to fight inflation if it's ever a problem. He can't acknowledge that the Fed will never fight inflation. But the fact that the Fed is not already doing it, inflation is obviously a huge problem right now. So why isn't the Fed doing something about it right now? Because it can't. And if it can't do anything about it right now, it's not going to do anything about it in the future when the problem is even worse. (laughs) 